Grab a Bible, go to Mark chapter 12. We are doing uh, verse by verse through the book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles on the side. It's going to be on the screen. I encourage you to have a Bible. Um, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Real quick, because uh, most of us weren't here with the announcements. Um, there's probably 20 of us or so. I want to... <laughs> we start at 11. Um, let's keep reminding us every week. Um, hey, so we have a leadership community right after this. We're providing lunch. Um, and I want to say to all the leaders out there that are leading ministries and community groups and all of that, please come. Or if you are not a leader, quote unquote, but you uh, feel like this is your church and you belong and you want to kind of stake a claim in this place, this weekend's a great place to stick around and hear what's going on. We have some great news and some ex- an exciting season coming. And we'll share it on Sunday eventually, but I want to bring it to the leaders first. So I invite you to come, stay at one. We're going to have a, a meal here at one o'clock in this room, okay? So if you didn't hear that, now you heard it. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Let's read together. Um, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, sir, the teacher replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but Him. To love Him with all your heart, and with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. We are in the middle of a a long day in the book of Mark. And it started in Mark chapter 11. So I want to remind us of the day before we jump into what's going on. So it begins, first of all, Jesus comes into Jerusalem in the, at nighttime. He goes into the temple and then leaves. If you would, go to Mark chapter 11. I want to highlight what happens. Verse 12. This is what happens at the beginning of the day. The next day, we're talking about this day, um, they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And its disciples heard him say this. So, what an interesting story to to begin the day. But Jesus begins the day coming into um, Jerusalem, which is essentially the capital of Israel. And he's on his way to the temple. And the temple is essentially the capital of Jerusalem, it is also, in the Jewish perspective, it's the center of the world. The temple was the place where God's presence dwelt. It was where heaven met earth. Not like a sloppy wet kiss back then. That's today. Um, anyways, but it's where heaven met earth. It was, uh, it was the, the capital, um, in the Jewish perspective, for political, military, economic, and religious um, center. That's where it was all happening, at the temple. Um, and Jesus, on his way to the temple, he, he goes to a fig tree and he curses it and it withers. 
He didn't see any fruit. He curses it. It withers. Imagine a fig tree here. I don't have one here. I, I tried to find one for us this morning. Imagine it withering. A picture of a withered fig tree. And he goes to the temple, and he gets to the temple, and he sees that people have set up shop. And they're selling um, things, and they're, 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 um, and, and he flips over the money changers, and he says, look, this is supposed to be a place, uh, a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. He goes to the, the epicenter of the world in the Jew, Jewish paradigm, where, uh, where people were coming to meet God, the place where God dwelled, where the authority was given to the priests, were given to the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, we've, we've talked about this. Um, and essentially, the, the authority of the temple was given, according to the Old Testament, to the king of Israel. Solomon built the temple and it was passed on to the kings. They had the right, rightful authority over all the activity in the temple. And then the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders kind of operated and stewarded the temple authority. And here comes this 33-year-old rabbi from nowhere, flipping tables, sorting out things, telling people what to do, how things are supposed to be. And they begin to ask him, by what authority are you doing this? And they begin to question Jesus. So we're in the middle of a series of questions. And the first is, who, who gives you the right to do what you're doing? Not knowing that the actual king of Israel is there. Is that interesting? That Jesus is the true king of Israel. He will die on a cross with the king of Jews on the crucifix. And the king of Israel shows up and begins to sort the mess out. And essentially... He, he, he essentially says that this is, this is no longer relevant. The temple is irrelevant. And he begins to be questioned by all the different authorities, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians. The Pharisees want to know, where does Jesus fit in the political system? Is he right or left? Does he fit here? Is his message this or is it this? And he, he, what did we learn last week? He provides another way. The Sadducees try to, try to see if Jesus will validate their misunderstanding of Scripture. These were religious leaders that used Scripture to validate their way of life. They used Scripture to distort truth to affirm what, the way they were already living. We all can relate to that. We pick and choose what we want is true and apply it universally to others. Are we with me on that? This is, what, this is the context we're in. And then here we are. Jesus is confronted by another question. And it's a question from a scribe, or it's the teacher of the law. Um, teachers of the law, these guys are the lawyers. These guys are all about right interpretation of the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. This, is, this, was, this was the word of God given to the Israelites. The fact that God spoke to the Israelites separated them from the world. And so these are our stewards of interpretation. They were the final say on all things um, religious. And so we have an honest question coming from a teacher of the law. And his question is, is very common in the first century. It was common throughout the Old Testament. If you ever wanted to know what a rabbi's stance was, what his mission statement was, you would ask him, uh, what's the greatest commandment? You would see this throughout history because um, the, the law of Moses had 613 commandments. Stay with me on this. 248 are, are commandments to, um, that are positive commands. 365 are prohibitions, what you're not supposed to do in daily activity. 
So 613 commandments to be obedient. And if you asked a rabbi, what's the most important commandment? You're asking him to, to, to say in a statement or in a sentence his doctrine. This is what he believes. Summarize 613 with one statement. That's what they're requesting. This is very common. In fact, rabbis throughout history would read the Old Testament and identify those statements of the prophets. So early rabbis would, would read Micah, Isaiah, and Amos and grab maybe one, one verse and say, this is what it means to be obedient to the law. You with me? Let me give you an example. Here's, here's one from uh, Micah. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. It says this, um, it, some of the rabbis throughout history began to interpret what obedience to the whole law looked like, and it's to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 56.1, early rabbis said that um, to be obedient to the law, you have to maintain justice and do what's right. That's it in a nutshell, 613 commandments, that's it. Um, Amos says this, uh, seek me, the Lord, and live. That that, if you do that, if you seek God and live, that that somehow is being obedient to the law. We're trying to, what, what they try to do is narrow the law to fewer and fewer precepts to make it a statement. Uh, there's, a, there's another one, there's, there's Habakkuk, which says the righteous will live by their faith. And then there's a rabbi who lived about uh, 100 years before Jesus. And this was, this was famous while Jesus lived in 30 AD. This rabbi was very well known. And um, they, he had this line, and this is what it meant to be obedient to the Torah. It was, whatever is hateful to you, do not do it to your fellow. Does that sound familiar? So for those of us that have read scripture before, we know that there's a golden rule in there that Jesus says. It says, do unto others as you would have them do to yourselves. He, he reverses this famous rabbi's quote and applies it to himself. So, this is a common thing. I'm just trying to paint the backdrop, but this is a totally legit question. And what Jesus reveals is something far more provocative than just a statement of obedience to the Torah. So, his response is this. Everyone stand with me. Seriously, stand this time. We're going to read this together out loud twice. Verse 29, where it says, Hear, O Israel. Will you read it with me? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Let's do it one more time. We'll start back. Ready? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You may be seated. If you would go to a synagogue today, you would recite this prayer. You would stand up and you would re recite the Shema prayer. It's called the Shema. Shema is the first word, here. In, in Hebrew, it's Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is a statement of faith. It is a declaration of allegiance and obedience to God. You would recite it in the morning when you go to sleep. You would recite it, or I'm sorry, in the morning when you'd wake up. You would recite it at night before you go to bed, when you'd walk into someone's house. You were reciting this state of allegiance to the one true God of Israel who is one above all else. And, and, and that word one is used in Genesis with, that talks about marriage. When we become, uh, when two become one flesh, the word is echad. And echad has a significant implication to what God, 
who God is, that he's oneness made up of several parts, that Christians understand this to be a trinity. You're with me. So we recite this as a good, proper Jew. Everyone would have been reading that. Everyone would have said that that morning. Everyone would have said that as they walked into the temple. And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then the Jewish understanding of this is that God, the God of the universe, deserves our entirety. The God of the universe deserves a full expression of who we are, our entire being, the entire human personality, the entire makeup of our soul gets honored to him. For the Jewish community, the, 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 the heart is our emotional capacity. The God, we can love God with our emotional capacities. Uh, with, with our soul, that's, that's the Jewish understanding of the spiritual capacities. That um, you, For those of us that are Christians or that believe um, that there are, there's a spiritual realm, we understand that we have a spirit and that we can actually love God with that spiritual stuff. It's the, um, kind of the unspeakable things inside of us that we get to love God with that. You with me on that? Jesus adds to Deuteronomy 6.4 and adds the mind to love God with your intellectual understanding. And I think that's a good one because the word mind is really understanding and the difference between knowledge and understanding is this. You can, there's a lot of knowledge in the world. Would you agree? If you want an answer for six degrees of Kevin Bacon, you can Google it and have it instantly. But understanding wisdom uh, is, is something about experience. It's about, um, it's about, uh, whole, it's about a whole expression of, of depth. It's about, how do, how, it's about, it's about discernment. So to the Jewish community, it's not just knowing that God exists, but it's understanding who he is. That's the difference between loving, knowledge, and understanding. You with me? And then the, the last part is to love the, the Lord our God with all of our strength, which is our will, our, our willpower, our capacity to do that. So Jesus' response is not that provocative. It's not that, uh, his first commandment is not that unusual every Jewish boy and girl would have understood that to be an important aspect of life. Now, there are variations of what that looked like. But Jesus essentially says that our, our, we're supposed to have an ongoing loving relationship with the creative God. That's one. Have a, a vertical relationship with God. This is what it means to begin. And I want to just say, say one more piece. There's a, there's a Greek word in the statement that Jesus has um, that's, that precedes the statement of mind, um, of heart, and all that stuff. And it's a word that doesn't mean to love God with your mind, but to love God from your mind, from the source. So not just to love Him intellectually, but from the source of where intellect comes from. That's from, the, from, from our existence and from our being, we're supposed to give God love and be in a relationship with Him. That's good, right? We agree that's pretty easy. I've got it down. No, I'm just kidding. So he starts there, and then, then he gets pretty provocative. The first time in history that your relationship with God is connected to your relationship with others and yourself. He adds the commandment from Leviticus 19.18. And this, in, in Leviticus 19, this is where all the prohibitions of, of oppressing and exploiting the weak and poor of Israel come in. And so he, he, he grabs this line from Leviticus, to love your neighbor as yourself. And what he does here is, 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 has never been done in Jewish literature until a hundred years later, 
Rabbi uh, Akiva actually says that the, the, to the fulfillment of the law is loving your neighbor. So it's, it hasn't been done until Jesus comes into the, into the scene. And what he does is he connects that our love for God is directly connected to our love for others. Now this is the Christian message. Would you agree? That this is the Christian message. The, the, the New Testament writers go off on this thinking. They say this, um, uh, you, you, John 13, uh, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, to love one another as I have loved you. 1 John four eleven says this, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. In other words, no one ever sees God, but by the way we love each other, people are going to see God. Jesus is standing in the temple and he says the greatest commandment is to love God and love others. And the New Testament writers go off. Pharisee, a Pharisee named Paul. Do you guys know the Apostle Paul? He was a Pharisee. He was a brilliant Jewish theologian. He was, he was absolutely brilliant and articulate in the way he thought. He was, he was an absolute Jew in the way he processed the gospel of Jesus. And he says in Galatians that this, coming from this perspective of, of the Jewish system of the Torah, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. He goes in Romans 13.10 and says this, Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So the greatest commandment we are given is to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. We got it. We can move on. Now, Jesus is saying this to a teacher of the law in the temple. What was going on behind him? What had been set up centuries before that connected God to people and community? What had been going on for centuries and centuries? How did people connect with God? How did they have right relationship with others? Because sin entered into the world and they couldn't interact with the perfect God. Perfect God. What, what did they need in order to do that? If you know this, the history of the Old Testament, they needed a, a sacrifice. They needed to bring um, an offering. They needed to bring something that would cover their sin so that they could be in right relationship with God and so that they can be in right relationship with others. And so they built this system called the sacrificial system that was placed in the temple. So for centuries after centuries after centuries, if you blew it, you brought an animal and offered it to God to cover for your sin. As Jesus talked to the teachers of the law, you could just imagine the line of people standing to be in right relationship with God with their animals to be offered to God on an altar. Can you imagine the system that was oppressing those people? That this, the temple was designed for something good, but just imagine day after day after day trying to be in right relationship with God, trying to be obedient to the law, bringing offering after offering after offering. And so Jesus says, it's simple, love God and love neighbors. Done deal. And this is the response from the expert. Go with me to verse 32. The response from the expert of the law. Verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with your heart, with your, all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then it ends, this, this passage ends with, and from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The highest authority in the land that is responsible for the sacrifice, sacrificial system that's going on says to love God and your neighbor is more important than all of this. And there was no more questions. Jesus was in the temple at the center of the city. And right before he gets there, he walks into the city and he sees a fig tree and he curses the fig tree. A fig tree in first century Jewish culture was a symbol for Jewish spirituality, religious, and religious leadership. A fig tree in first century Jewish culture was a symbol for Jewish spirituality and leadership. Jesus comes into the temple where he says it's practically irrelevant. And on his way to the temple, he burns the flag. Jesus burns the very symbol of the religious, military, economic, political establishment and says this is all coming down. It's provocative. It's subversive. It's revolutionary. It's what gets him killed. Jesus essentially burns the flag and makes a statement that the temple is no longer the fundamental way to God but that he offers us a relationship through him. That you, don't long, you no longer have to stand in line day after day after day, but he offers us, us himself. Rather than rules and regulations, he offers us a, a relationship. Now, I don't know for you, but for me, this is really good news. But I don't know if you've noticed, but I look at the Christianity around me and I see a list of rules and regulations, of do's and don'ts, of sacrifice and offering, of day after day after day after day. I don't see very much of a relationship that's loving God and revealing God through the way we love each other. But rather we settle with a list of to-do's. That Christianity, when you enter in, they hand you a book and say, do what it says. Not let me set you up on a blind date with this loving God. We give you formulas and, 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 and doctrine rather than a living God who breathes and invites and gives and blesses and honors and loves. We say, do this and don't do this. this the, the list, I mean, we all have our own list, but for the ones that I see are, I'm a Christian because I don't drink too much. I'm a Christian because I don't uh, cuss too much. I'm a Christian because I don't look at girls the second time when they pass, right? I, I don't talk too bad. Um, I, 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 uh, I don't go too far with my relationship with the opposite sex. I don't watch R-rated movies. And the list keeps going on. And uh, I don't drive too fast on the freeways. I obey the laws of the land. Um, I, I go to church. I read my Bible or my devotional because it's just the same. They have some verses in there. Um, 
When I pray, it sounds like a bunch of worrying, but I still pray. I give a percentage of money, and the list, I serve once a week at church, I set up, and the list just goes on and on, and it's exhausting. But this is the Christianity we reveal. Imagine if we define the success of our marriage based on the same type of list. Just for a moment, bear with me. If, if I was going to define the success of being a husband by that same list, don't cheat on her, don't talk back to her, don't interrupt her, don't look at other women, don't get angry, uh, don't say it's that time of the month, don't do that. <laughs> Seriously. Billy's engaged. Billy, take notes. <laughs> do dishes. Do take on a date night, even if it's not creative. I've got to do that. Uh, compliment her. Make the bed. Buy her flowers. Imagine if she thought that, or imagine if I thought success as a husband was that list. How terrible would it be for my wife? Is it, isn't a relationship more like learning to like the things that she likes? And then learning, learn, learning to re-like, or I'm sorry, relearning to like what she likes, because that's probably going to change in a year. So true. All you women out there, baby. Doesn't it look more like uh, uh, being creative? Uh, not, just, not just settling, but, but having energy, give, having creative thoughts, giving, giving uh, forgiving when, I, when, when, when she makes a mistake or, or, or asking for forgiveness. Doesn't a relationship look like asking, not demanding? Doesn't it look like laying it down? Doesn't it look like paying attention and listening and then remembering what she said when you heard it the first time? Doesn't that, isn't that what a relationship looks like? Pursuing, caring, covering, helping, coming under. Is it a check off the list or is it a relationship? I mean, if we're, if we're playing basketball and we think we're playing basketball by not going out of bounds and not double dribbling and we think we're playing the sport, if we're just focused on the rules, we never really get to play, Right? God wants, to wants us to play at the center of the field, not the edges of out of bounds. Or, or maybe this is helpful, and it's helpful for me, because if you've ever seen me cook, you know how I follow the rules. I mean, it's not cooking for me, it's putting ingredients in proper order. So for me, it's I cut it to, you know, to the best of my ability, really slow, so I don't cut my, my fingers off. I, uh, I, I follow the directions exactly to the ounce. If I, I can't add too much milk or too many eggs or, or you know, a tablespoon of sugar, it's got to be the exact amount. It's like nerve-wracking and awkward, and, and I don't, I, how, how much oil do I put on the pan? How hot does it have to be? I mean, these are the questions as I'm trying to cook for Alex, what I'm, what I'm trying to do, and it's just, it's just absolutely terrible. It's rigid, and there's no freedom whatsoever but then you watch these shows or you watch my wife cook and it's like they're on the phone they're stirring they're, they're doing this thing they're putting stuff in and they keep stirring they're talking and it says a cup of, of wine for the spaghetti sauce but they put the bottle and then they put the show they know exactly what they're doing they know the amounts and then it and then voila mine's like this ugly disgusting stale overcooked dry thing and then these these chefs they just create these masterpieces 
these masterpieces. And I'll tell you what, I bet you these chefs, they've cut their fingers a couple of dozen times. I bet you they cooked some stuff that didn't turn out very well. I bet you they learned how to cook by experience. I bet you they learned to take chances, not by following this rigid system, but by exploring the gifts that they have. Maybe that's helpful. Jesus invites us to tear down the system with him. To subdue it, subvert it. To say that's irrelevant. And he invites us to participate with God in a relationship. Not a way of real rules and regulations, of procedures, but of one of acceptance and forgiveness. I love this. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. The words became embodied by a person. How amazing is that? That it's not a list of words we have to follow, but it's a person we're invited to be in relationship with. And that how people will know that he exists is by the way we love one another. That's what Christianity is all about. That's why Jesus stands in the temple and a couple days from now he's going to be crucified by the same crowd that was cheering him on on his way into Jerusalem. Because he's done with the system. And so are we. The kingdom of God is about relationships. Jesus, instead of giving us a withered fig tree, gives us Jesus, the living God. It's pretty cool. A couple of thoughts. Uh, how does Jesus love the Father? I just want to throw that out because I think some of us have a, a misunderstanding of what love looks like. So how, how does Jesus simply love the Father? It says in John that he's obedient to him. He only does what the Father's doing, right? You remember this? He abides in him. But I also think he learned how to only do what the Father's doing by spending time. I mean, Luke, Mark, John, they take pains to show that Jesus goes away to be alone with the Father. I just wonder how many of us could see a revolution in our lives by setting aside time to be with the Father. I know we're so busy and everything's instant. It's like your instant devotion. Just read one paragraph and you're good. What does it look like to, to, to cultivate a dynamic relationship of flesh and blood with the living God? That's how Jesus loves the Father. That's how I see it in Scripture. It's a simple way. Second thing is, how does he love his neighbors? What does he do? In scripture, what is he, he dies. He lays down his life. He serves his friends. Do you want to start learning how to love your friends? Those that are hard, those that are, are irritate, irritable or make you irritable and irritate you and um, all that good stuff that we can talk about? You lay down your life. You serve. Two practical ways to begin the process of developing a loving relationship with God and others. You with me? It's pretty good. It's not resurrection and marriage like last week, but it's uh, loving God. No, it's good. So how do, we, how do we begin the process? Here's what I want to say. I think many of us, we don't have healthy relationships. 
So the idea of beginning a loving relationship with the, a God is just so vague and far from us. So here's what I want to suggest this morning. In order to begin to live out this commandment, in order to grasp it, we need to first come to the understanding that we are loved by God. It's that dang song again. <laughs> there is no possible way that you can love someone else without knowing that you are loved by God. There's no possible way you can love God without recognizing that he first loved you. That is impossible. That Jesus came, bore all the things, all the things that diminish life, sin, all of that. Bore it on the cross so that you could live in perfect relationship with God. So the system don't, doesn't exist anymore. So that you can be loved by God perfectly. If you don't believe it, there's no way on earth you're going to be able to live out this commandment. I'm telling you right now. It begins with embracing and accepting your identity as the beloved son and daughter of Christ. If you, if you don't believe that, you need to read Romans 8 over and over and over and over again. What does it say? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing you could possibly do on earth or in heaven can separate you from God's love. He loves you the same today as he will tomorrow as he did yesterday. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how many sermons you can preach, how many people you bring to faith, it doesn't matter how good you are, he loves you the same. And until you embrace that radical identity, you cannot love God and others properly. I'm telling you. The invitation is to first receive the love that God has for you. That's, that's it. That's why it's, for some of us, this is awkward, but to stand with songs being sung over us and to have our hands out is the best thing we can do. Because maybe we can hear the voice of God inside of, inside of us whispering, you are my beloved. I love you the way you are. You're perfect. Scripture says you're a saint. You're holy. Nothing you can do to separate yourself from me. That your life is hidden in Christ. Once we go there, then we accept our identity. And when we do that, this is what I want to suggest. For how, do we, how do we begin to integrate this? I can give you a, a checklist, right? Read your Bible, pray, blah, 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 all those things. But I'm afraid that many of us will make that the rule and the system to, of, to follow rather than the living God. So I think this, this is it. Accept God's love, receive your identity, and finally, brothers and sisters, invite the Holy Spirit to teach you what it means to live out this commandment. God gives us himself to show us. Because for you, it's going to be different for me. I need to love my wife differently than someone else needs to love their wife. Would you agree? I have different gifts than some of you. We all have different capacities. Some of us are more in tune with our emotions. How do we love God through our emotions? So we have to invite the Holy Spirit into the process to show us how to love God and love others and ourselves. Good? That's good. Can we just sit for a moment? We'll, we'll invite the, the team up and I just want to invite some time, just some space to maybe settle in, invite actually the Holy Spirit to minister right now. Why don't you do this? Close, if there's anything on your lap, maybe move it, put it on the floor. Close your eyes. If you're new with us, you can keep your eyes closed. Uh, this is a time we just want to say, hey, there's a living God. We believe in him and he, he ministers to us through each other and we want to create space for him to minister. So we, we like to pray for each other. We like to offer some specific ways to pray. 
But right now, as this, this message, something might have stuck out to you. It might be settling in. Why don't you just offer that to, to God and just say, God, help me understand this. Help me to embody this. Maybe some of you desperately need to grasp your identity. Just listen to my voice a second. I think that's a big one. Some of you have these, I, I just see banners over you. Addict. Uh, failure. Divorcee. Not good enough. Broken marriage. And Jesus comes and he just replaces those identities. That's a false identity. Some of you are here and you hopeless. Jesus wants to come and put hope in your life and bring freedom. So let's just wait just a few more moments. close I want to say this you know I think sometimes we see Christianity as uh, this person we have to become this person that we don't want to be but Jesus when we, we accept Christ when we have the spirit he makes us fully ourselves he increases our capacity for life as it was meant to be lived in the first place songs. Can I invite you guys to stand with me? Some of you need to go to the crosses and just spend some time at the feet of Jesus and take communion. But obviously God's stirring and we want to we recognize that some of us sometimes need prayer and uh, we have a ministry team that's going to come up right now. But if, if any of those things that I said spoke to you as far as identity and just needing to receive God's love, would you just come forward? We'd love just to pray for you as a, as a church. So you can just come forward, stand, and we're going to worship, but we'll have some people come around you and pray for you, whatever you need. You can come right now. The rest of us, we can uh, continue to worship and offer ourselves to God, and we'll close out in just a little bit. But if you need prayer, just come forward and stand at the front of the stage. Thank you for your boldness. We'll have our prayer team come in a second. I think there's a couple more. If you guys want to come forward... There's no risk here, really. We just want to bless you. We want God to bless you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Cool. Just come on and stand in the front. Yeah. All right. <laughs>